Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to The Economist Asks, continuing our series of shows looking at the run-up to America's election. And this week we ask, why does Hillary Clinton want to be president? In a few decades, Mrs. Clinton went from fiery lawyer... I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies and had teas, but what I decided to do was to fulfill my profession, which I entered before my husband was in public life. ...to First Lady of the United States from 1993 to 2001. He's the one who's elected. He's the one who has to make the final decision. But I care about what he does and I care about what happens and I want to participate. But scandals dogged the Clintons' White House years and Mrs. Clinton has struggled to stay away from controversy even in her own presidential campaign. This clearly demonstrates actions taken to destroy evidence by those operating Secretary Clinton's private server and by her staff. But can she weather the allegations of wrongdoing to become the first female leader of the United States? And if she does find herself the new chief occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, might she find some of the drive and appeal that characterized her husband's first years in office and galvanize and heal a nation bruised from a bitter and divisive election campaign? To explore the Hillary paradox, we've gathered our own economist voices and some guests, among them Sally Bedell-Smith, a first lady of big biographies, who tells us why Hillary will always struggle to live up to Bill's charisma. She is much more regimented in the way she presents herself, and it has reinforce this notion of inauthenticity. Democratic pollster Celinda Lake highlights the delicate line that Mrs. Clinton has to tread in her campaign. She has had to juggle very carefully the experience that voters like but the message of change. Our Johnson language columnist Lane Green looks to Hillary's key speeches for glimpses of the type of president she'd be. The transcripts of Hillary Clinton reveal exactly something that you could look forward to in a Clinton presidency, which is a kind of methodical nature. And the road for women to the White House. Author Ellen Fitzpatrick tells us it's been a longer journey than many of us remember. The sexism runs across time. There's really nothing new about that at all. First, though, on the last day of our visit to Washington, my producer Cheryl Brumley and I headed to one of Hillary Clinton's campaign offices in neighbouring Virginia to get a better sense of her ground game. In the age of social media and 24-hour news, a campaign office might seem, well, a bit old-fashioned, all that bunting and volunteers hitting the phone. But as former House Speaker Tip O'Neill once said, all politics is local. You need people convening in one place, behind one candidate, reaching out to men and women in the streets and in their homes to drive a campaign in the final push. As we headed to North Virginia, that campaign was in a tailspin as the story of a fresh investigation by the FBI into emails involving Mrs. Clinton broke just before I said hello to the volunteers. We've perched in the corner of the campaign headquarters for Hillary here in Virginia. 
It's a room of mainly young volunteers hitting the phones, those big long lists that they've got up on their computer screens of people to be called over the weekend in the final push for the Hillary campaign. Just behind the volunteers is a very pro-Hillary graffiti wall. She's four children, women, and so many people and groups who need just a small boost, says one message. I like Hillary, I hate Trump, says another. The words trustworthy and qualified feature quite a lot, but like a lot to do with Hillary, the language is actually a bit unexciting. Glass ceilings are so last millennium. That's one of the more witty ones. Sarah, you volunteered here. It's, it's not your first day by the look of it. You look quite no. familiar. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been working uh, since right after Labor Day and coming okay, in pretty so regularly. So it's, it's been really exciting to get involved and do what we can to help Hillary win. Have you volunteered before on Democratic campaigns? I've worked in both the Obama campaigns, and that was very exciting and sort of led me to want to get involved again here in Northern Virginia. We have a very diverse population, and so it's, you know, it's good to work with a wide variety of people and also to go out and try to get those people to vote as well. We came in on a sleepy Friday afternoon, but the, there is news today, isn't there? And it, it's the kind of news that the, the Clinton campaigns probably wouldn't ideally have going into the weekend, which is yet another tranche of FBI investigation into emails. What's the mood around that here? Well, I think people are really kind of keeping their heads down. I left home, um, I live about uh, 15 minutes away, and I'm a little bit of a political junkie, and so I was listening to MSNBC in my car, and it was broadcasting from a Trump rally, and of course, his response when I finally was able to catch up with the news, I thought was a little bit over the top, and, and I think continues to be a concern in terms of promoting for people to lock her up when we don't even know what the facts are yet. But I think that people are still determined to support her and it makes us all the more you know, eager to get in here and, and do some work. It's only a few days really away from, from voting day. Does that make you a little bit nervy, particularly when you get these slightly blindsiding stories you switch on the network and a probably unwelcome story for the Clinton team is back? Well, one of the things that struck me, I've, I've been voting since the early 1970s, and, you know, in terms of political perspective, there's always talk of the October surprise. And a few years ago, if you had a big surprise or a story that you were going to unload, you would do it the weekend before the election. But I think one of the things that's interesting is there so many people are eager to vote early and I think part of that is they just they're determined they want to vote they want to make sure they get it done and they don't get interrupted and so I think one of the interesting things this year is a lot of people have already voted and it's not going to change their minds and and I think that particularly people who are the people who are voting early have made up their minds we're just determined to do what we can to get our supporters out and make sure that everybody who wants to vote for Hillary Clinton can vote for Hillary Clinton Hi, Carolyn. So we're rifling through some very fetching yard signs here. Bright blue Clinton cane on miserable white lettering. What are you going to do with these? Um, we're going to send them out to volunteers so they can put them in their yards and show their support for Hillary. So you put your Hillary support out front? Yes, definitely. It's really important that everyone sees that your neighbors are voting for Hillary and that they make the right choice on election day. 
It seems almost like an old-fashioned way of advertising candidates, doesn't it, in 2016? (laughs) You don't look like you were around in campaigns in the the 1980s before the rise of technology, but you still think these are effective. Yes, I mean, there's definitely social media, but just seeing that your neighbours are um, out and support your candidate is really important to have a community around her. I'm putting back the yard signs carefully. We have to talk to every single Democrat in the state of Virginia, and thankfully that's a lot of people, but to that we're going to need a lot of volunteers. I'm leaving the pro-Hillary volunteers here in North Virginia, taking a last look at that graffiti board. I'm with Hillary because a woman's place is in the White House, someone has scribbled. In less than a week, we'll find out if that's true. My report there from Hillary Clinton's campaign office in North Virginia. Last week, we ran a special show on Donald Trump and his motivation in running for president. Our Twitter pages were alight with your responses, and they were mainly not in Mr. Trump's favor. Brenda of Six wrote, Trump is selfish. I'm afraid of my fellow citizens because of him. Do send us your feedback or favorite phrases or bugbears from the campaign on Twitter at Economist Radio or radio at economist.com. One author who knows the flourishes and flaws of the Clintons' last years in the White House is Sally Bedell-Smith. She's a biographer who takes on some of the world's biggest figures, from the Queen and next year Prince Charles, to a best-selling account of the Clintons' turbulent White House tenure back in the 1990s. Catching up with Sally in Washington, I wanted to know what she sees as the difference between Hillary and Bill's approaches and how that's played out in this campaign. Well, I think it's a matter of temperament and it's a matter of style. I titled my book about them for love of politics and I do believe that that has been the glue that has bound them together from the very beginning. She has always recognized that he was a natural politician. There's nothing he loves more than going out, uh, pressing the flesh, lingering as long as he can, you know, after a campaign event. She has actually said that he is a more natural campaigner than she is. He has an insatiable appetite for approval. She's much more by nature reserved. So there's a, so this stylistic difference is very much in evidence still. What have been the key moments or images that have stayed in your mind from the campaign that tell us about Hillary Clinton now? You know, the fundamental difference is that she does have a sort of robotic style that is just the way she is. Whether it's been an adaptive behavior, I don't know, but it's compared to Bill, she is much more regimented in the way she presents herself. And it has reinforced this notion of inauthenticity. Bill Clinton has seemed a bit peripheral, frankly, in the campaign a sense perhaps of a generational shift? Is he too much of a liability? I think there's a pretty big difference between the way he has been deployed on this campaign versus the way he was deployed in 2008. He he was much more active as a campaigner. There's a kind of weird passive-aggressive dynamic between the two of them. Uh, There were times in 2008 when he almost seemed to be undermining her when he made those comments about Jesse Jackson that were terribly damaging in South Carolina, and there were other things that he said along the way. This time, I think, when he has gone off the rails, which he has a couple of times by saying that 
Obamacare was, you know, was a disaster. And I think they've been, they've had less of an impact because mainly I think they've been overwhelmed by so much negative coverage of Donald Trump. But also I think that he doesn't have the kind of level of dynamism that he had in 2008. And is there a picture in your mind that summarizes this generational rolling on of time between the Clinton presidency, the Bill Clinton presidency, and where we are now? The image that springs to mind is the day that the Clintons and the Gores took a bus from Monticello, home of Thomas Jefferson, one of Bill Jefferson Clinton's great idols, and they arrived in January 1993 for the inaugural weekend. They attended a two-hour concert at the Lincoln Memorial. But what really sticks with me is that after that, the four of them led a group of 18,000 people. They marched across Memorial Bridge. It was a symbol of youth, vitality, promise, hope for the future, don't stop thinking about tomorrow, which was their campaign theme. I think about that now and almost hesitate to say this, but I wonder if they could walk across Memorial Bridge because both of them uh, lack that kind of dynamism that they had all those years ago. The role of the Clinton Foundation has dogged this campaign as it has the reputations of the Clintons in the last few years. What should happen to it if Hillary reaches the White House? I really strongly believe she should disband it on day one. There's no particular reason for it to exist at this point. It was set up, obviously, to do charitable work, but it wasn't set up like Bill Gates set up a foundation with a big personal fortune backing good works, or the Rockefellers, or the Fords, or the Carnegies. It was set up in such a way, it was almost set up like a super PAC. That was the model, really. It was using other people's money to do some good things, which they certainly did, but also, quite frankly, as we've learned from the latest round of the WikiLeaks, to enrich themselves. Once you set up an organization like the Clinton Foundation that depends on large dollar donations from corporations, from foreign governments, you run the risk of having the suspicion and perhaps even the fact of conflicts of interest. How do you think she's coped with Donald Trump in the campaign? I think she was the luckiest woman in political history to have drawn the most unqualified Republican to run against. She's very, very tough, and she has never hesitated to strike back hard when somebody comes at her. Overall, she has out flanked him, outperformed him when it comes to anything of substance and policy, because quite frankly, he doesn't have that. He doesn't have the discipline for it. He doesn't have the knowledge. He doesn't have the experience. And she can counter with something that is substantive. But he has put his finger on something that perhaps always surrounded Hillary as a negative. It is that a lot of people really don't like her. She's a polarizing figure, and he's still running her close enough. I mean, this looks like a Hillary presidency from where we're sitting, 
But it's not a done deal. It's still only a few points off. So what is it that stops her being able to overcome that? I think it is this deeply embedded perception of her that goes all the way back to the White House years. There was a period, really, in 2008 when there was a kind of amnesia about that. But this campaign, because Donald Trump will say anything and do anything and calling her crooked Hillary, there is this deep-seated mistrust of her, this sense of inauthenticity that has almost been reinforced by these efforts to constantly reinvent herself. And in fact, she is the same Hillary. People who don't like her are not going to be turned around. Do you get any sense of what her foreign policy priorities would be? I was speaking to a senior diplomat here in Washington who said she takes Russia much more seriously than Barack Obama. She wants perhaps to go back to a view of Washington's relationships with Moscow and indeed with Europe as being something more core to foreign policy. Is that a view that you would share? I suspect that's probably true. I was fascinated again in thinking back of what I wrote back in 2007, that Putin was fascinated by Hillary, by the way. He had a meeting with Clinton, and he asked him, point blank, what do you think your role in the White House is going to do to her presidency if she wins? Will it have an adverse impact? He was aware of this debate and the potential pitfalls, and he expressed admiration for Hillary, which I thought was fascinating. There is talk of a one-term Hillary presidency, if indeed she wins on November the 8th, that the age factor, some concerns over her health and difficult Senate elections that should come up two terms into her presidency. After all of this... But you have to remember, she will have attained what she has long wanted to attain. She will have become the first woman president. Assuming she, the Democrats get control of the Senate, she will have the opportunity to nominate one and perhaps two and maybe even three Supreme Court judges, which could be her greatest legacy. Our thanks there to Sally Bedell-Smith, author of For Love of Politics, a biography of the Clintons. In her office in downtown D.C., Celinda Lake, a pollster and strategist for the Democratic Party, is toiling over final returns from polling and focus groups across America. We know now that it looks like a close finish, if the polls are right, but what have the turning points been along the way? The first big polling shift goes back to the primaries, when voters were really established that they were going to vote for change and vote for populist change. And the first big surprises, of course, were the emergence of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, and they tapped into very much the same phenomena on the left and on the right. The second big change was the evolution, I think, of perspectives on the economy. And I think that the second and really benchmark of Hillary Clinton solidifying her victory was when she came out with a strong populist economic message. And that's different than the Clinton message of 1992. And it is reflective of the current times that we're in. This country believes overwhelmingly that we're in bad economic times. You've got uh, 70% pessimism in the country, the most pessimistic period in the history of the United States that we still have polling data on, the longest period of wrong track that we have polling data 
on, and 75% of Americans who say their kids are not going to be better off. Now, this is a country, to put it in perspective, where everybody came from someplace else, unless you came on a slave ship, because you were going to make your life better for your future, for the next generation. Even the Native Americans came over from the Asia continent to make their lives better. And how much would you say that Hillary has struggled from the perception that she's an establishment candidate? She's been in the White House before, albeit as First Lady, but she was very active. And she does seem sometimes to struggle to shrug off that sense of entitlement. Do you think she's actually been scared by the polling numbers? I think it's less a question of entitlement because I think she always knew this would be a tough fight and she's worked very hard for it. And if you look at her life, her life is a life of firsts and of working hard for things. I think she has had to juggle very carefully the experience that voters like but the message of change. So what she's had to watch is to make sure that experience didn't tip into becoming status quo. And your instincts are exactly right. Status quo is deadly in the elections right now. How has Hillary then gone about changing her message to get away from that toxic status quo candidate idea without then being accused of being flaky? First of all, she's been much more comfortable using her gender as part of her message. And it is a big change to have the first woman president of the United States. The second thing she's done is she's been very comfortable saying times have changed. And the irony was, of course, the Clintons were the change candidate in 1992. But now it's become the status quo candidacy. So in some ways, it's back to the future for her. But to think about what is her own mark, what is her own set of policies, what fits today. Now, Hillary's appeal to women is often dissected, and women aren't an undifferentiated mass here. How are you seeing that? How are you seeing millennials, and now we should perhaps getting towards post-millennials, also unmarried women, or women who are, are not anchored in families yet. How do they respond to Hillary? This gender gap that we're seeing, which is at record high, the difference between men and women, is produced not only by Hillary Clinton, but also by Donald Trump. But what we are seeing is we're seeing women of color, we're seeing unmarried women vote for Hillary in record numbers, and they have liked her from the get-go. And 80% of unmarried women, 78 to 80% of unmarried women, are voting for Hillary Clinton. What we are also seeing is a record gender gap between married women and married men. So Democrats actually usually tie or lose married women. And we often see married women starting to vote the same way as their husbands at the end of the campaign. Here we see we are winning married women still right now, and married men are solidly voting for Donald Trump. The most amusing statistic for your listeners is we ask married men and married women to usually vote the same way as your spouse, and 73% of married men said confidently, absolutely, and 49% of married women said, yes, I vote the usual, same way as my spouse. We call that the sure honey factor, and we're looking to see it in record numbers. Our columnist here, David Rennie, made the point to me that that blue collar vote that was once so associated with voting Democrat was moving in massive numbers to Trump, but that there was movement the other way, that women, suburban women, what you might call white-collar women, if women have collars in the same way, were more likely to be heading away from Trump and to Hillary. That's absolutely right. It's an astute observation. It's part of a long-term trend that started with Barack Obama. And in Barack Obama's elections, and in this first election of Hillary Clinton, we will see record low support for Democrats probably among white blue-collar voters. Two things have happened. One is the decline of unionization. 
unionized blue-collar workers vote significantly more Democratic than non-unionized. The second thing is we have developed support among college-educated voters and lost support among non-college-educated voters. Many of us in the Democratic Party are very uncomfortable with that. And we believe that if we are truly going to be a governing party, and some of your parties in Britain are facing the same challenges, then we need to appeal to white blue-collar voters, the voters who are losing in this economy. We should be fighting for them. And I think that will be something that President Hillary Clinton will take on and something that Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, many in our party are speaking to. That was Democratic pollster Celinda Lake reading the runes. Hillary Clinton isn't known for flashy oratory. Surely there's little to read between her oft-rehearsed lines. But no, the economist's language expert and Johnson columnist Lane Green finds clues in Hillary speak. American politics has become what you might call hotter. The words chosen, the general tone of campaigns, commercials, speeches, and everything has gotten very, very critical, almost angry. And that suits, to some extent, a country in a fairly angry and down on its own self kind of mood. Hillary Clinton failed every single time as Secretary of State. Now she wants to be president. Hillary Clinton doesn't have the fortitude, strength, or stamina to lead in our world. The hatred, the animosity, I will bring people together. I'm going to bring people together. You watch. It doesn't suit Hillary Clinton very well. So she has learned over the course of the year, I think, to play to her strengths, which is calm. She has used the word presidential quite a bit in an obvious contrast between her own temperament and that of Donald Trump. So she keeps her language very even. She keeps her tone quite even. When I hear something like that, I am reminded of what my friend Michelle Obama advised us all. When they go low, you go high. Unfortunately, I think many female politicians, when they try to mimic the sort of fire and drama of a traditional male politician, it can often be described as shrill or hectoring. And that has to do with the fact that uh, her, for example, naturally her tone of voice, being a woman, is higher than that of a man's. And so she will often uh, be criticized as something like shrill, a, a word that's almost never used with a male speaker. One of her most common words is mentioned, on the other hand, is families. She talks about families quite a bit. Standing up for kids and families became such a big part of my life. The senator who made sure the heroes and families of 9-11 got the care they needed. I believe that when families are strong, America is strong. I think families is meant to evoke to some extent, the fact that she herself is a woman, she's a mother. When you think families, you often think of mom before you might think of dad, and you might think of the nurturing role of a mother. And uh, she's subtly reminding the audience that she is a mother and that Donald Trump is doing terribly with women, thanks to issues that I think most of our readers are familiar with. Nobody has more respect for women than I do. Nobody. Nobody has more respect. Please, everybody. And frankly... Uh, those stories have been largely debunked. If you look at the transcript of their speeches, and often this is not a good thing to do because if you're looking at speaking styles, you really should hear the words and you should see the person saying them. But sometimes we do look at the transcripts of what people say, and this can be revealing of, of things that are a little bit under the surface. Hillary Clinton very clearly constructs her answers. They sort of seem to have a beginning and a middle and an end. There's sort of a topic sentence. There's a bunch of details. She's very frequently described as kind of having laundry lists of detail. By contrast, Donald Trump's speech works very effective in the hall. Very often his audiences are more or less enraptured by what he says. But on the page, they reveal someone who is really making it up as he goes along. 
and I'm a smart person. These are the smart. We have the smartest people. We have the smartest people. And they know it. And some say it, but they hate to say it. But we have the smartest people. The things that you signal with a tone of voice and body language make that work in the room because that's how most people talk most of the time. But on the page, they look like a syntactic train wreck, I think, giving people the wrong impression that he simply isn't very smart or isn't capable with his language. I think the fact that he is where he is in this race tells you that he uses language quite effectively. But I do think that the transcripts of Hillary Clinton reveal exactly something that you could look forward to in a Clinton presidency, which is a kind of methodical nature. That's The Economist's Lane Green on Hillary's speaking style. Finally, Democrat women have taken to wearing pins, showing a shattered glass ceiling in the event of a Hillary win. Academic Ellen Fitzpatrick has written The Highest Glass Ceiling about the women in history who've run for president. Far from trailblazing, Hillary Clinton stands on the shoulders of giants who never got to take the presidential oath but tried pretty hard. Over 200 women have vied for the presidency. Ellen tells the story of the most successful of these candidates. So could she describe to us the scene in the opening of her book where she uses an incident at one of Mrs Clinton's rallies in 2008 to underscore the challenges that face female contenders. As she began to talk to her audience, she was interrupted by some hecklers, some young men in the back of the room who were holding up signs uh, and they were chanting what was written on their sign, which was, Iron My Shirt, Iron My Shirt. You know, she handled it rather adroitly. She stopped and... Uh, laughed, and uh, she said, ah, the vestiges of sexism alive and well. And she said that she was running for president in part to break through the highest glass ceiling that had kept women out of uh, positions of power and for uh, future generations of young men and, and young women who would see a different example of what was possible in American politics. The thesis of your book is that many more women have had a go at getting to the White House than we perhaps assume. And Victoria Woodall was the first of them. She ran for president in 1872 at a time when women still couldn't vote. Was she running because she thought she could win or because she wanted to raise the issue of women's rights and the vote in particular? She was someone who had a very grand sense of her own capacities and uh, even a vision of herself as someone who might, in fact, revolutionize American politics. So she may well have thought that she could win. She actually said in 1870 that less change than had already taken place in the United States, this was of course during Reconstruction, when new constitutional amendments were passed that would enfranchise African American men, the Civil War had just been fought, slavery had been abolished. She said less change than has already occurred could put a woman in the White House in the next election. But she certainly was as well very committed to advancing uh, women's equality and she saw herself as embodying that cause. Do you see any echoes across time between her and and Hillary Clinton? Uh, I noticed that you report that her nickname was Mrs. Satan and something of that same kind of invective is hurled 
not least by Donald Trump, but others too at Hillary Clinton. Absolutely. I mean, she was portrayed by the political cartoonist uh, Thomas Nast as the devil, just as Ben Carson likened Hillary Clinton to Lucifer in the current campaign. So yes, the sexism runs across time. There's really nothing new about that at all. Shirley Chisholm is perhaps one of the most fascinating figures in your book, African-American, target of a smear campaign from her rivals in the Republican Nixon camp. What did she set out to achieve and how close did she come to her ultimate goal? Well, Shirley Chisholm's a fascinating case because she actually received more delegates, not many, but more than any candidate, any female candidate who ran for president before Hillary Clinton in 2008. And she... uh, had come in, she had a long career in democratic politics that really began in the 1940s when she was a student at Brooklyn College and began attending meetings of the local democratic organization that was run by Irish American, uh, Irish American political boss. And uh, the neighborhood, Bedford-Stuyvesant, was becoming increasingly African American. And she really kind of put it to these guys that They needed to address the needs of people in the community. Eventually, she was part of an insurgency that overthrew the political bosses, and she rose up through the Democratic Party. In 1972, she imagined that a new coalition could be put together of women, of African Americans, of young people, of other minorities, of poor people, and that they could provide a different face to the Democratic Party and that they needed a standard bearer, and she saw herself as that standard bearer. We've written a lot about sexism and Hillary Clinton and tried to chart it in this campaign and what it might mean or what it might disguise. Could it be that some of the vitriol directed at her is not really primarily because of gender, but it's because she's a bit of a legacy candidate in a divided era in politics. And also, frankly, a lot of people have had enough of the Clintons or the Bushes or any of the Brahmin tribes of American politics. She has really overcome the obstacles that sunk all the women that came before her in experience, in raising money, in the national recognition she has with the American people. So it's been a double-edged sword. Without those things, she wouldn't be where she is today. Ellen Fitzpatrick, author of The Highest Glass Ceiling There. Well, that's all for today. You can sign up for The Week Ahead, our next show, which will feature our election endorsement. And do join us again next time on The Economist Asks. It'll be published the day after the elections on November the 9th, featuring Economist editors taking on the results. Deep breaths, everyone. It's almost over. In Washington, this is The Economist. 